Good morning or good afternoon or good evening or whatever time it is where you are. Welcome to another edition of the Surf and Sales podcast. I'm Scott Lease here with my good friend and co-host Richard Harris. And we are brought to you this month of February by uh, our good friends at Salesforce Revenue Cloud, Vidyard, Gong, and Lead411. And we love uh, working with them and partnering with them. And we've got lots of cool initiatives coming on uh, later this quarter and later this year. So check them out. Uh, we are joined today by head of sales and business development at Extend in San Francisco, Elizabeth Nemchek. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, we're, uh, we're excited to talk to you. This has kind of been a good while in the making. I think we actually originally tried sometime in the summer of last year when you were like in between jobs and you've since landed a new role. Yeah, we were trying to do this for a couple of times and we had to reschedule because life and let's yeah. be honest, COVID got in the way and then a move to the West Coast. So I'm glad and thankful for your patience, but also excited to like come full throttle now. Now let's let's start right there. All, <laughs> all this chatter is like, oh, everybody needs to move to Miami or you need to move to Austin or you need to move to Atlanta or wherever else you need to move that's not New York or San Francisco. Yep. Here you are in the middle of all this, leaving Chicago, going to the Bay Area, doing the exam. Why? Yeah. Well, um, I think everyone is trying to figure out what's best for them, right? And why is I was lucky enough to meet one of the co-founders of Extend. Um, and quickly what we do is we just turn brands extended warranty programs into a positive experience for their brand and ultimately their merchants, right? And I think when you get an opportunity, especially trying to figure things out and trying to figure out what's right for you, um, you gotta go with your gut. So everyone was telling me like, why the heck are you moving to California and what are you doing? We're in the middle of a pandemic. And ultimately I was like, I gotta do this. Like my gut is telling me this is a company that's gonna go places and it's a leadership team that I agree with. Um, and respect so much. And I was like, let's get in the car and just drive out there and see what happens. What's the worst that can happen? I have palm trees and sunny weather and a great job. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and is your team, is the team really small still? So the team is growing to 11. When I joined, we were at four. Um, so, so definitely moving on up, but um, we're still actively hiring. Yeah. Now, what are, what are some of the things that you love about being in such an early stage environment like that? Oh, gosh. Um, the building and the challenge, right? Um, I think when you go and you sign on with a Series A or even a Series B company at this point, you not only get to learn what people's strengths are in a different way, where you get to be more realistic and personal with them, right? But you're also driving the business to where it's gonna be in two years, right? Um, so I think the day-to-day -day of building the culture, but also building the product. And, you know, sometimes we make mistakes and we have to pivot. I think that's the most gratifying thing for me personally, um, because we get to do it together. Have you always been drawn to that, to the sort of allure of new challenges? Has that always been a part of you? My parents are going to be like, of course, like this girl was always trying to find the, the biggest challenge for herself. 
Um, 100%. I think when you put process in place and you work at even a corporate company or something that doesn't really allow you to mend the rules, it was never a place for me. And that's how I actually got into startups. I was like, corporate side is great. A lot of direction and a lot of, you know, compliance, but it shouldn't take three weeks to approve a decision. And so that's ultimately where I was like, why is it taking so long? Let's make some decisions. Let's figure this out and let's grow. Right. So go back even further though, where, you know, to your parents, where would they, where would they have said, oh yeah, this is, this is who she is. We've known this since he was uh, eight or two. Well, oh my goodness. My mom is going to laugh so hard. Um, My mom and dad, every time that they would tell me no, they would just like rile me up because they're like the stubbornness and the resilience of this little one was uncanny to my sisters. Um, And there was never a time where I wouldn't get it done, right? When it came to just like, like I started a cupcake baking company when I was like 12 or something, right? And my mom's like, why are you adding this pressure to yourself? And I was like, what do you mean? This is so much fun. I get to meet people. I get to do these things. And she's like, you should just be relaxed and be a kid. And I was like, I don't know. I don't agree with that. Like, let's go out and like share the positive vibes and do the cool things. Um, and to the to this day, my stubbornness is still well and and very much alive. How do you? So, so I'm dying laughing because I'm so stubborn. Yes. God. How do you find that balance for you? How do you find the balance between turning your stubbornness into motivation? But you know, sometimes it can also get in our own way, right? We, you know, and I and I don't care how stubborn you are. We all sort of have our egos around it, right? How have you have you learned that balance, or do you not care about? Oh, I definitely care about it. I care about it a little too much, right? Um, But I think the way that I learned about it is making mistakes and also having a lot of really great family and friends that were like, yo, you gotta, you gotta tap this one out, right? Um, But when it comes to the personal side, I try my best to be like an open ear and a listening ear versus being like, let me give you my opinion. Um, And that comes with, I think years of practice and mistakes. Um, But I also think on the professional side, it's a really good thing to compromise and just like actually actively listen to someone and figure out where they're coming from. Because I would say eight out of 10 times that my stubbornness and their stubbornness, right? You always get into the same situation with the two people that are most stubborn. We're saying the same thing, but differently. So I think taking a step back and saying, okay, let me just like stop talking for a minute and just hear you out. And we're probably going to figure it out together. And that's what happens. Can you, is there a recent story you can share, whether personal or professional? Because I I think people always like to hear this. They can go, oh yeah, I did that once. (laughs) Um, The best advice I'm going to give someone right now is you don't get many hills to die on. So you got to pick them carefully. Like what's most important to you, right? Um, gosh, a story. There's just so many. What, if, if I was your boss, what would, since we're both stubborn, what's like an area that, that we would like potentially butt heads? Like, what is somebody who's managing you, you know, 
have to be on the lookout for or or vice um, vice versa and is it is it unique to you or is it like a sales leader kind of trait that we all have so i'm actually going to take you back a little bit outside of this job because my boss and i thankfully get along so well and know how to listen to one another um but i will say that i think I've, I've had some bosses in the past where they're like, Elizabeth, we're just going to do it because this is the easy way. Um, and this is just what's going to make our lives easier, even if it wasn't in the rep's best interest. Right. Um, and I think that's where my stubbornness comes out. You can't call me down. Right. I'm like, okay, wait a second. Like, why are we doing this? And how in the heck is this going to help the 50 people that we have reporting to us? Right. Or how is this going to help anyone. Um, so I think my biggest piece of advice to myself and also anyone managing to me is not using the word, hey, because or the phrase, hey, we're going to do it because it's the easiest option or, you know, like we don't need their support because we're just going to do what's right for us. I, I like fundamentally disagree with that. Do you put that into practice? Are you one of those people that's like, okay, let me look at my day. I'm going to do the hardest thing first, like very intentionally, like to that extent. I wish. I actually leave that for after hours. I do everything for the team, for like the small tasks to make sure that their obstacles are taken away. And then the biggest parts of, and the most impactful, I do when I can just have a little bit of me time at work. Um, well, it's interesting because you said after hours which is, which there is no after hours. There's just, yeah. Well, that, 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 that's different to me. And one of the traps that every, you know, every executive falls into, but yeah. um, that's one of the traps that comes with the job is that there is no downtime whatsoever. And you spend all day doing things for other people. Yeah. And then you're like, awesome. It's uh seven o'clock at night, eight o'clock at night. I'm finally done. You know, cleaning up or, or eating dinner or feeding my kids, whatever. It's like, now I get to go to work. And then you gotta be, you gotta be careful obviously, because you know, you run at that rate for five, 10, 15, 25 years, you know, how do, how do you maintain balance? So how are you fighting to maintain balance in your, uh, in your career and in your life? I'm not, to be honest. Um, I think- That's a candid answer right there, Richard. As it is, I, that's, the, that's the truth we want. I respect that. I respect that. Yeah. I think, um, and this kind of goes back to what my mom would say, or my dad, or even my sisters, they'd be like, why do you put all this on yourself? And at the end of the day, I am so freaking grateful to work for the companies that I have and have the experience that I do. And I think when you have a team that you have to earn res respect and build trust with, you just got to do it. And it just makes it a lot easier for me because I love working. And I know that that's probably not the most balanced answer, right? But at the end of the day, I've learned, gratefully, I've had people come and be like, hey, Elizabeth, have you taken a walk today? And I'm like, no, I woke up and got on my computer, right? So I think from a balanced perspective, I've definitely learned to be like, okay, let me close my computer for maybe an hour or whatever that looks like. And let me find a few bits and pieces of the day that I could just do me. But 
ultimately when you enjoy something so much, um, I personally have not been able to find the balance. But what, what I will say is I take days off intentionally now and really focus on the things that are really important, whether it be my family or friends versus trying to do 17 things at once and being like, let's go on this vacation, but I'm going to work 12 hours a day, right? Um, you're not there for anyone. And I think that's probably the biggest balance I've learned. Um, but again, that's- what's that, what's that like? Like you, you said it really nicely, which is when I take days off, I take them off intensely. Yeah. What's that mean? Um, I think that means- you can't be in three places or four places at once or even two places, right? So um, I think one of the mistakes I've learned in my career, full transparency, is that work always has come first for me. And that's great and sometimes unfortunate, right? And so when I take days off, I take them with intention and just being there, right? Now we all mess up and, and sometimes we have to answer an email, but I realized that I was on my phone all the time. And like, who wants to hang out with someone when they're just working when you're at dinner, right? Um, so when I take days off, I tell my team, listen, I'm not gonna be on email or I'm not gonna be on Slack, but if something's super important, you know, you can always reach me, but I need you to call me or, or text me. And I think figuring out those lines and those boundaries and some people are like, that's not a line. That's not a boundary. It is for me, right? I'm not going to go actively check company stuff, but I am going to be available if they need me. I think that's, I mean, the first step to me is telling your team to leave you alone, right? Like that is, <laughs> that is a, but that's a huge piece of mental health. Like I'm a yeah. big advocate of it. And, um, and so telling people, and you know, what's surprising when you tell them they leave you alone and they recognize what you're doing. Right. And then hopefully as a leader, they kind of go, oh, I should do that too, right? So you're, set, you're even setting a good example for others. I think, I think that's the most important for me, right? Is the mental health and setting the example of, it's okay to take days off, it's okay to be offline. It's also okay to say, I'm not gonna really do much today because my, house is, my, my head is elsewhere for either personal reasons or, or anything. And you know, I had a really hard time doing that when I probably needed to take a few days off and I didn't. And I would rather build a team that's really honest and supportive of one another versus a bunch of workhorses that I need to work 16 hours a day, right? There's yep. a balance in all of it. And if we're just honest with our intentions and what needs to get done, I know I've built an, an incredible team that can come to me and say, I literally I'm taking tomorrow off, but everything that we talked about, I'm going to be accountable for. And I think that's the best balance as a leader too. Great. I'm going to, I'm going to shift this because I want to get your answer to this, but I'm going to ask Scott first. Scott likes it when I do this. So I've been I'm on the spot. Yeah. Scott, <laughs> this, this, I'm telling you, Scott, I swear you could have written this book. The score takes care of itself by Bill Walsh. Like you have got to go read this book, but he talks about, I just listened to it yesterday. I'm going to write about it but he talks about burnout. And one, he said, one of the things that he noticed about people in burnout, and Scott, I'm, I'm curious if you are this way. Sometimes I think you are. That even when you win, you gave yourself zero points. But then when you lose, you gave yourself negative points. So you were never letting yourself get ahead, right? You were never 
letting yourself compliment yourself on a job well done. Does that resonate with you, Scott? Or you feel like, no, I learned that earlier. It resonates with me a little bit. That's interesting that it's framed in the context of burnout though. Right. Um, I've never thought of it in that context whatsoever, but I, I do, I think of it in terms of just like competitiveness and drive and wanting to keep learning, growing, you know, doing more. I mean, here's, here's a perfect example. Like I can't stand this guy and I can't believe I'm about to quote him, but like they were interviewing Tom Brady last night. I'm making myself sick just thinking about it. Um, And he, and he goes, we'll be better next year. Like this motherfucker is already thinking about winning an eighth, Super Bowl, right. you know, like, give me a break. But that, that, that's kind of the framing that, that I have it in. So if I, if I win something, like I'll take, I think I take a moment and pat myself on the back or even seek a pat on the back. Um, but if I lose something, then, oh yeah, I'm in the, I'm in the, back, I'm in the pit of despair when I lose. Go back to your early days. And, and then Elizabeth, I want to hear your answer too. Right. And, and it was framed in, in the ideas of, you know, for him, professional coaching, right? And he talks about Dick Vermeil, right? Who was his friend, who, you know, he reached burning because he would never let himself be sort of satisfied, right? And Dick Vermeil, you know, burned out for what, 14 years, 17 years before he came in. Because yeah. even if he won, there was still something like he just couldn't grasp the the positive of it and so i'm thinking back to our leap fish days right um i don't know if we're allowed to say that company name so leap. <laughs> but um you know do you feel like when we were leaders and managers then which was 10 years ago we never you know and some of it was environmental we never let ourselves stop oh you know what i mean yeah yeah i i, I agree with that i agree with that I, I honestly wouldn't change that though I think, I think running that hard, it was interesting that Elizabeth said, you know, right away, like, nope, don't have balance, not really aiming for it right now. That's how I felt when I, when I was earlier in my career. It's like, I'll, I'll, I'll worry about balance later. I'm going to run, I'm going to outrun everybody right now. Um, and I don't know that, I, I don't know that I've, I don't know that I've ever reached full burnout. I'm still, I'm still running, but I'm looking forward to the day where I can just pull the cord and be yeah. done entirely that sound that has always felt more appealing to me yeah how about you elizabeth like do you, are you the type of person or were you the type of person ever where it was like zero points for winning i get zero points for winning and only negative points for losing are you kidding like hello my name's elizabeth that's my day-to-day right um but i also think i i genuinely feel like that's a little bit of women in sales too. Like it's always, okay, I have to, I don't want to take a lot of risk because I have to take calculated risks. Um, And I also kind of want to debunk that, but it goes back to, and I always ask this in interviews, do you hate to lose or love to win? There's no right answer, but it's what's your, like where, what side are you on? Because how motivated are you? I hate to lose, right? Because even if we win, I'm not going to quote Tom Brady. I'm not there yet. Um, but um, even if we win, there's always something to do that that's going to be better. So what I think is more important that you have to celebrate those wins for others. I never do that for myself because I'm just not there yet. Um, but 
we have to keep going, right? Um, because everything, those small wins are actually going to compound to a business going public or someone getting that, I don't know, promotion that they're looking for, right? Um, so yeah, I think I'm always, I don't know sports very well, but I'm always in the dugout. I don't know. I'm not even going to go here. Um, but like, I'm always the one that's like, okay, cool. I might've gotten a touchdown or a striker. That doesn't make sense. But I think, you know, my point is that even in, in the wins and we win the game, you're always thinking about, okay, what could I have done better? And what could I have said differently? Or who do I want people to know me as? Right. And you continue to be better day by day. Now you, you came up through um, a sales training program, um, Victory Lab, and yeah. some, of my, some of my good friends, Blake Hudson, Ryan Walker, uh, I love you know, have, have worked there or still work there. Yeah. Um, I have a good relationship with a couple other sales training programs like that. Can you just talk, can you talk a little bit about your, your experience? I mean, you're a, you went to like art school right? And then you pivot into SaaS sales and, and technology sales. And, and there's a lot of people during this last year who, like you, have been making a hard, a hard pivot. And they're, whether it's Expireship or Always Hired or Victory Lab or whatever else is out there. Um, talk about your, your experience and why you chose to go through there and, and what it was like. Um... I give Brian Barr the ultimate credit, right? I think what he's done and what Blake is doing and what Ryan has done when they when they were there, if they're still there, like, it's amazing. Um, but I think you have to go for the right reasons, right? So I went to art school. I got a job in asset management while I was still in art school because I had to pay my way through college. Literally every Monday, like I wasn't allowed to go to school unless I paid for my tuition that week, right? So... I was so excited for the opportunity to earn more that I was like, I just have to take this job. I have to see where it goes. Now, gratefully, I was promoted a few times, but also I think that experience has taught me, it taught me what I didn't want to be and like the type of company I didn't want to be at. Now that company is amazing, right? I'm so thankful for all the experiences, but I realized that I needed to be in a fast paced, more agile work experience. And my sister, had worked for startups for a really long time. I didn't even know what a startup was or what that looked like. And that's kind of where I ran into Victory Lab. Um, so I was part of the seventh cohort. And I remember thinking this is way too good to be true. And I also think that if you're at the right startup, no matter what stage, you're always going to get that feeling. And that should actually push you to do better and more and be more like, honest with your intentions, right? And so I remember interviewing with Brian Barr, who's the founder of Victory Lab. And he's like, why do you wanna do this? And I was like, honestly, I know nothing about the startup space. And what I wanna do is educate myself and figure out what kind of company is right for me, right? I know that I don't wanna be in a corporate setting, whatever that means nowadays. But what I don't know is I don't know who I wanna become or where I wanna go. I know that I'm gonna be a kick-ass salesperson and you're gonna help me kind of like prime the edges. Um, but it was more so of a learning experience of figuring out what kind of stage of a company that I knew I was gonna 
be a part of. Um, and then having honestly this mentorship that that company gave me the confidence to be in sales, but also gave me the confidence of, of asking for what I wanted in a career versus like letting someone else tell me. Right. And I think those programs, if you're there for the right reasons can be game changers. And that was my start into the startup scene was being a part of that, knowing how fast you can grow and just like honest relationships. Right. Um, and just a great time. Like, you know, Ryan Turner, he's amazing. Blake also amazing. Um, they're just real people that want to help people. And, and once you find that, you don't want to, you don't want to let it go. Yeah. What, what was surprising to you? Like you said it yourself of like, you know, you had no idea that this was possible or able and you were like, you're kidding, right? Like it was, it sounds like you were saying the complete antithesis of everything you thought about, you know, corporate world and job, right? What were those pleasant surprises for you that, that maybe many of us just take for granted? I think we do take it for granted, honestly. Um, like, was it that there was a ping pong table in the office? Was it that there was... There was a basketball hoop, which I was like, whoa. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's the honest conversation, right? When you go into the corporate side, you literally know the questions you're going to be asked. And the questions I was asked to even get inter, into, excuse me, the, the program were more about me than I've ever been asked in an interview setting, right? They wanted to make sure that not only was the program right for me, but I was right for the program too. And I think that's when I started figuring out that an interview process is two people, not one company and a person, right? You have to make sure that both sides are moving forward with the right intentions and expectations. Um, and also like, I just remember, uh, like Brian getting on the phone and he's like, I'm sorry, I have my children in the background and he just seemed like a normal person. And I know that now it's normal to us because we're in this environment that that's okay. That was never normal to me. It was always like, wait a second, you have to come prepared. You can't really speak at the table. You have to be like asked for your turn. And it was a breath of fresh air of being like, whoa, this is out there. Where did, where did you ever think you had to be asked for your turn? That's interesting. I don't disagree. I'm just curious. What was your experience with that? Um, I think if you don't have, you know, the right leaders beside you and they don't trust you, like you have to get called on to speak. Right. And it's building that trust. And if people aren't willing to do that, you don't have that trust. Does that make sense? It does. And I'm going to, I'm going to push here. So push yeah. back on me. How much of it do you feel was gender related? Meaning oh. that as, as a woman, nobody wanted to hear my voice or maybe the, if it was a male there that was sort of in, encouraging you not to speak until spoken to bullshit. I wouldn't, so 100% it's it's gender related. Like, let's just be honest here. I think we've gotten a lot better, but I think, I'll be frank, when I talk to female candidates, it's way different than when I talk to male candidates, right? And I could go into the stats because now I know them. Um, but I think it's the little 
phrases we use more so of like, hey, you can't, like, you need to wait to be spoken to, or I'm going to call on you, right? It's, this sounds so silly, but um, like, you need to smile more, like, what's wrong with your confidence? Um, the work that you did right before a meeting, right? When you're, when you're going to present, and you have someone that's like, oh, your work is great, but I really wish you took more of an emphasis on X, Y, and Z. And you're about to like walk in and do this presentation and you're like, what the hell? Why did you just like throw me off my game? I was really confident. And now you're, and this kind of goes back to always starting at zero, right? So you take that one piece of feedback, at least I do, and it's not always negative, but you're like, what in the actual fuck just happened? Like, why am I about to walk into this room? And I think those phrases build up um and that's actually what leads i mean females and even males at this point to not speak up because we just don't know the impact of our words at times go back to what you were saying when you interview men and women you notice the difference what are some what are some what's some advice that you can give based on that difference like here's what i've noticed and here's what i recommend um and, and feel free to throw in stats as much as you, you said, you know, the stats now. So, yeah. yeah. well, I mean, a hundred percent of men are going to apply for a job that they're not qualified for when you have 60% of women that are going to be like, wait, I don't hit right. these two points. Right. I think it's just like an entire culture and startup space. And even in corporate America, we have to make job descriptions a little bit less. Hey, these are the exact things of prerequisites. Like, who are you trying to look for and put that in the job description, right? Um, To mitigate that. But I have, and I don't wanna make it as much as of a gender thing, but it, it has become that a little bit is that I have women that are way more confident and way more strategic. And I know that I need to sell them on the roles way more because they don't have the confidence in themselves, even though they've produced amazing work and have the strategy and the sales expertise that just comes natural to them. And we could go into empathy, right? Like I would argue that sometimes women have more empathy than, than males. Um, but by doing that, it, it kind of like discredits the female of saying like, hey, I know I'm ready for this. I know I can do this if you take a a risk on me or whatever that means nowadays, I will produce X for you versus the conversation usually are. Oh, go ahead, Scott. No, I'm just, I was just thinking you said, will you take a risk on me? Like, I I feel like we know we have work to do in this area just because you're even still using the word risk associated with it. Like, why is it a risk? It's no more of a risk than than hiring me or hiring Richard or hiring a, you know, a sales leader who has never really been, you know, at a VP level for the first time. And uh, it's this whole like can do versus has done before type dynamic, right? Um, I'm not picking on you. I'm just, it's just an observation that, you know, it's true that, that that is still deemed as a risk and that, makes me think, oh, I know for sure we still have work to do because that word is still there. Yeah, but you should pick on me, right? Because we should debunk that or we should talk about it. And I think that goes back to even me personally. Do I think I'm a risk? Yes, but do I know that once I'm given the chance, everyone will see 
okay, she's thoughtful. She's great. She's going to get to her numbers. There's not going to be a chance in hell that I'll ever let a company question like my, what's the word? My commitment, right? To them. And I'll be the first to say, hey, I made a really silly decision and, or I messed this up, um, but let's talk about it one-on-one. But I think that that word risk is still in my vocabulary and you're right, we kind of have to change it. And what are, what are some of the, uh, what are some of the, the early mistakes as a, you know, senior level leader that you've, that you've made that you can, can share that you won't make when you get, you know, your seat at the table at the VP, you know, executive level. I've actually been thinking about this so much. Um, So I had this still to this day, he's such a a good friend and and truly like someone I admire a lot. Um, But I think going from a peer to peer to peer to manager is the hardest part of your career, right? And I I went to him and I said, listen, I just kind of want advice. You've been doing this. You're a C-level executive. Like, tell me the things that I can do better to make sure that the team still knows that I'm I'm there for them, but I'm still doing my job as like a new leader, right? And the advice that I got was, you're not here to make friends. You're here to get respect. And now, what is it, three, four years later, I fundamentally disagree with that. Like that actually changed my management style to a person that I didn't love um, because I think you earn respect by earning trust and building that. And yeah, it's okay to make friends within a company because you're looking out for their best interest or you're figuring out how to make their lives easier by taking obstacles away. And so my interpretation of that was, you got to hit your metrics. You've got to be the hard ass. You've got to just make sure that your team succeeds because that's a direct correlation of how we're going to view you as a leader. And that actually, the more and more I think about it, I think that was the best, but honestly, the worst advice I've ever gotten because I was able to grow three years later from it. People really worry about the don't make friends as a leader thing. Um, Yes. It, feels, it feels like I totally agree. It's terrible advice. Some of my best friends are people that I've worked with yeah. um, and, and managed Richard being one of them. Um, I think it's, do you think it stems from the fear that will, you know, push people or discipline them or, or be unable to like, let them go if they're not performing well, is that where it comes from? You think? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think it, it, it definitely instilled fear in me and that's rule one. You're not supposed to instill fear in your leadership, right? Um, I'm not sure where it comes from. I think it comes from maybe a lack of leadership, right? A lack of of knowing what's best. Like if you think uh, that you have to go into a a room and demand respect and make sure people are listening to you because you're like the alpha male. Um, yeah, I don't know. I 
I don't know where it comes from, but I think it, I could, I could say it's maybe a little bit of lack of self-confidence, right? Maybe. Yeah. yeah. I think <clears throat> it feels to me like it's a lot of, you know, we need to maintain control and we'll lose control of the situation. And um, we don't want that. So, you know, I worry about becoming, you know, friends with Elizabeth because then I won't manage her. I won't push her hard enough. I'll tolerate her, you know, mediocre performance more, things like that. And I think that that from the top, people worry about that. And uh, it just screams control to me. It's, it's the thing that I kind of. Yeah, I like that you pointed that out because that kind of steered me. It definitely is control at a certain point. And I think that's like a lack of self-confidence in the leader. If you need to control everything and make the yeah. easy decisions because it's going to be easier on you, I would say that. Yeah. You could probably rethink your management style. One, one, uh, one question that I, that I have for you before we get close to kind of wrapping up here is, you know, there's, there's always, there's no lack of content around um, you know, how to become a good salesperson, um, you know, even to some extent, a little bit of like how to be a good leader, things like that. There's a massive void, I think, in terms of content of here's how you become a better executive sales leader, like very specifically. Yep. How do you recognize the gaps in your skill set where you are right now? to know where you need to, to get to. Like, these are the things that I, Elizabeth, needs to work on in order to be ready for, you know, <clears throat> that VP of sales role or the CRO role. Uh, and how do you go about trying to close that gap? Oh, this is a great question. Um, I personally actually observe a lot as to what decisions people are making that are above me that are potentially in that seat, right? Or that are in that seat, right? So I take a look at like their thought process and I'm like, okay, how did you come to that, right? Um, you're not just observing most, those, you're observing and then asking. A hundred percent. I observe and then ask because yes, I wanna be in that seat one day, but I have a lot of room to grow. And you're right, there's not like one book that helps you or one, I mean, shoot, program design for, for specific leadership when it comes to just a VP or C-level, right? Um, you have to be like really vigilant of the leadership team you're working, how they work, but also ask, well, why are you making that decision the way that you are, right? Um, I'm very lucky to be in an organization that we have so many readers here and they're like, oh, I read this book in the beginning of my career. So then you pick up the book, right? Even though sometimes most likely they're boring, um, but you have to continue reading and you have to continue to take certain pieces of the puzzle on yourself and, and take ownership of saying, okay, if this is the book they read, maybe that'll lead me to how they're thinking through it. Um, and it's just like, bits and pieces everywhere. I wish I had this, this beautiful answer. That's, oh, you have to do this and this and this. It's observing the leadership that you're in, asking them the reason as to why they're making the decisions that they are 
and then asking for them to like walk you through that process. Um, and then you have to get into the mindset of, okay, I understand that. Is it because it's best for the business? Is it because it's best for the employees? Right. And the best leaders do the balance of you, you do both. Right. Um, and then you read as much as you possibly can get your hands on. Yeah. It's uh, I don't know if there's a perfect answer because I don't know if it's been spelled out and you say, you say read, I don't know if it's been spelled out perfectly for somebody like you to, to go read. So yeah. that's a, uh, that's, that's one of the interesting kind of holes in the market, if you will, that um, I think people can try to fill. Oh. Well, tell me when you're going to write the book. <laughs> funny you mentioned, funny you say that. Uh, I want to thank Vidyard again and Gong again and Lead411 as well as Salesforce Revenue Cloud for uh, sponsoring the Serpent Sales podcast and just being a part of making this show happen. Uh, I want to thank you, Elizabeth, um, for spending some time with us. It's, it's, been, uh, it's been fun. Um, so before we get out of here, we always like to end the show saying, hey, you know, how can we be helpful to you? Um, is there any advice you need or anything you want to want to chat about and and if not that's fine maybe there's something that you're working on uh you know passion project or some cause you support that you want to draw some attention to uh, so this is kind of your your moment here i appreciate that um i would say we are hiring at extend right now so i always appreciate the community and and kind of the community that you've built um scott and richard uh that's actually how I learned about surf and sales. I followed you guys for a few years now. Um, but I think it's building a community and we've done that through TNS, right? That's how we've become a little bit closer. Um, but ultimately I'm at a company that is, is growing exponentially and I always want to give a chance to the people that are like, Oh, I can't believe I'm, I'm, I'm able to do that. So I like to hire from different um, backgrounds and places and demographics. And I think if there's one thing that would come out of this is like one really great hire that is just waiting for the chance, you know, just to get more specific, are you looking for SDR or AE? What are you looking for? So currently I'm focusing on SDRs. Um, We call them BDAs in my org, Um, but we might have a few AE seats opening up. Um, but let's, let's keep to the SDR role right now. BDA. There's a, there's no endless, fancy. endless stream of acronyms for all what these. Is, roles. What does the A even stand for? Associate. It's gotta be my, that's gotta be it. Guys, we're fancy. Come on now. Very fancy. Very BDA, fancy. business development associate. That's my guess. Yep. That's exactly it. Boom. How do you, just out of curiosity, how do you define it differently than a BDR or an SDR? Or don't you, you just came up with, you guys wanted a different name. She's, she's okay. fancy. She just said she's fancy. I mean, come on, look at me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I think ultimately the leaders of our team decided that, but I think there is no difference, but we run our sales team a little bit differently. So it's not this typical SDR role where, hey, here's your list, here's your script. I disagree with that. It's more of like, what's the strategy you're going to bring in? And for whatever reason, it's more appealing um, to candidates because they're like, this is new and this is fresh. And I think that kind of sums up the company that we are is that we try making sure that 
we're doing right by the employees, but also making sure that, you know, we keep the new and exciting out there too. Yeah. So associates for life. <laughs> That's awesome. <clears throat> well, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us again, Rich, uh, <laughs> Elizabeth and Richard. Thank you as well for joining me, Richard. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, stay in touch, Elizabeth, and I'll, I'll see what I can do about finding some, uh, some people to, uh, to send your way. Well, I really appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much for your time. And I'm glad we're all wearing blue now that I noticed it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're all wearing blue. Did this. Yeah. Um, Perfect. But have an awesome week. Um, and I hope you guys are just staying well. Thanks. You too, Elizabeth. Cheers. Bye, guys.